Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight Podcast, your home for interviews with authors, illustrators, editors, and other industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. My name is Sam Saddam and my co-host is Chad Henson. What's up, everybody? And today we're pleased to bring you a conversation with comedian and TV writer Lois Bromfield. Her book, My Dirty Life in Comedy, is coming out this summer and the ebook is being distributed by Book Baby. What will we know Lois from? Glad you asked. She was a longtime writer for the original Roseanne show, not involved in the, the reboot, unfortunately. Uh, and she also did stand-up. I guess she still does stand-up, uh, but not in a year or so, thanks to COVID. And uh, Now she does so in Germany, where she lives with her partner. That's a great cover photo. Yeah, we're going to have to use that for the podcast episode. Uh, so I watched some of her old stand-up bits, and they're pretty funny. And really interesting to me was reading the book and trying to match up the time frame for where this comedian is in her life. Yeah, that's always interesting for musicians as well. Documentaries, old albums, even memoirs that mark a period in time in the artist's career. Yeah, you have a favorite musician memoir to recommend? Yeah, a book called It's All in Your Head by independent rapper, singer, and producer Russ. He's well known for his organic rise to fame without a record deal. And in his memoir, he talks about his journey breaking into the music industry and the mindset he had to maintain in order to persevere. We also have plenty of book baby memoirs out there. It's a very popular thing to self-publish. Uh, trans rights activist Hope Giselle, Navy SEAL David Goggins, the Shabazz the OG, just to name a few. Uh, there's really too many to count. So without further ado, here's my conversation with comedian, writer, and now published author Lois Bromfield. Her wonderful memoir, My Dirty Life in Comedy, is now available on the Book Baby Bookshop. The book starts with her decision to move to New York City from her home in Canada to chase her dreams. It was a huge culture shock, but you know what? I, I, I loved Americans right away. I mean, when I was in Canada uh, in the set, when I was a, ki a kid and I met my first American in a shoe store and uh, Canadians are relatively quiet people, you know? So um, I remember being with my mother, I was a little kid and hearing, hey, what's that? You guys got a size nine? Like just big, loud, wonderful American voices. And I, and I really liked them. And I thought I want to go and live where those people are because that's who I was. So, um, yeah, I just, I went to New York in 1978, I guess it was 1977. And it was just so, it was so dirty and so horrible. And I loved it because I just wanted to be part of it. It was scary. I was really naive uh, when I was young and I just, I just wasn't paying attention to anything. So it's amazing. I'm alive, honestly, but it was, it was great. I, I, it was really amazing in the seventies. And know? there was just no other option back then for comedians. I had to go to New York. You had to go to New York because in Toronto and Canada, there was no comedy club. So, you know, there was no place to perform. So you, you couldn't do stand up anywhere. And there was no there was no radio shows that did comedy. I mean, there was comedy, but there was no stand up comedy. And Mark Breslin, who owns the who owns Yuck Yucks, hadn't I mean, he wasn't he wasn't around doing comedy yet. He wasn't opening comedy clubs. But, um, yeah, there was no other choice. I could have gone to L.A., but I never thought of that. It was too far away. And I was only, you know, 20 something. So. Yeah, I really wanted to go to New York and and I just I loved it right away. It was so difficult though. Every single thing, everything was expensive and dirty and difficult. So expensive, a little bit less dirty from what I hear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now it's really great. Now it's easy. Now it's like there's a Starbucks in the gap and everything's really safe. And you can you can sit in Times Square on those stairs they have and you can sit there at two o'clock in the morning and drink a coffee and nothing will happen to you. I mean, it's just different. And but New York in the 70s was really unbelievable. Yeah, it was nuts. So what, what comedians did you admire growing up? How'd you um, get I don't, I don't know. I loved Elaine Boozler. I really liked. She was a New York comedian. And 
Um, Larry David was doing comedy in the 70s. Isn't that great? Larry David was doing stand-up and he would get up on stage and just like, I don't know what he was talking about, but he just wasn't talking about anything. Like it was just rantings and it was good. And this was his big genius brain, you know? And um, I didn't see Jerry Seinfeld though. I don't know why I never saw him performing that. And I guess he wasn't, I guess he was in LA already. And um, Gabe Kaplan, I remember seeing him for the, all the comedians really old and just starting out in New York. And um, there was many others. I don't remember them right now, but there was tons of them. And I was so new. So, you know, they just, I went on at like two o'clock in the morning and I, it was really, really hard. And I look back on it now, I think how hard it really was to do. And and now when I go to London and perform, the comedians and the women comedians are so good. They're all so good. And there's tons of them. And back then there was like me and like four other women. That was it. That was it. And there was nobody else in the club. It was all men, which was fine, but it was tough, you know. Um, but yeah, and the comedians back then were the people who really made it big. I really liked them. They were really good, really smart, funny. So on the topic of women comedians, you reference uh, that you always had back then an intro of, are you ready for a lady comedian? And it was kind of a patronizing thing. Uh, so I'd imagine that's changed a bit, huh? Yeah, it's changed. Well, because once you have a reputation and people know who you are, they, they're really respectful of you. But um, some, some MCs do it. It's rare, you know, but back then, yeah, it was just a big, it was a big novelty. So they brought you on like a novelty act. Um, but the women complained over the decades. And then they said, you know, don't bring me on like that. And once you started to get credentials and once they started to bring women on like Sandra Bernhardt, who had some notoriety, then they had to be more respectful of their intros and it changed the face, changed the whole tone of it. So that you, you just bring all women on, like this is a comic, just a comedian, not, oh, here we go, a woman. Ah, <laughs> they didn't do that anymore. It was pretty patronizing, yeah. But it changed. And now when I go on, of course, they bring you on like you're their mom. So it's great. They're really careful. They say and the music's really careful. Everybody's really careful. But um, yeah, I mean, it was I, I don't want to say it was hard for women, but it just wasn't a lot of us. And there wasn't a lot of women. But I got to tell you, I keep saying it because it blows your mind when you see how many female comics there are now. They're so good. I mean, they're way better than I was when I started. They were they're so bold and, and brash and they don't care what they say. And they're totally liberated and open and funny. Just so funny. So good. Well, the idea of being better than you were, you reference uh, early on in your book that the idea of bombing was a rite of passage and you knew it had to happen. So what's oh, yeah. that feeling like? I, I always wondered what that was like. It was, it was awful. I mean, you bomb because you didn't, you didn't know how to, how to handle your audience. I mean, I was, when I would bomb, it would be, I bombed on television once. I'll never forget that. It never left me on television to bomb on TV was horrible. But in the clubs, you know, when you're starting out the first couple of years, yeah, you bomb all the time because you, you don't know what you're doing. You don't have a grip on it. You don't have control of your crowd. So you would bomb. And then sometimes I would go up in front of, you know, 20 people who were drunk and you just bomb. They yell at you. They tell you to go off stage. They say, I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. The things people say to you, you're a comic. So you either get good or you quit. <laughs> you know, and you just got to get good at it. And so I got good. I, I got better and bombing makes you better. But I've seen comics. I got to be honest. I've seen comics who bombed and they got famous. You know, they made it somehow, whether it was because of their actors, because of their looks or because of their persona or something. They necessarily weren't necessarily funny, really funny. And like the first time I saw um, Eddie Murphy, I mean, he was just, he was so confident and so good and so good, you know, and and Sam Kinison was just like a screaming maniac, but these people were so, there was nobody like them, you know, they were just 
that there was just no one like them. So that's what you had to establish was you had to become really just a person who that you, they knew who you were right away and there was no one who could copy you. And then, then you were good and the audience would mess with you because they were so strong. This book was so much fun to write. I had never written a book in my life. I had written television, but when I sat down and I said to my partner, I'm going to write a book about my years in Hollywood. And she said, that's great. But I'm sitting there for like a year and a half or whatever it was, a long time. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this. This I'm not going to be able to find the interesting um, stories because they're only interesting to me, you know? So I don't know if people are going to want to read it, but, and then all the dirty stuff and the words and the, and some of the stuff I did, <laughs> I just figured, you know, just write it. Who cares? People are, people are going to go, what? But they're not going to go, oh my gosh, I got to close this book and go to church. You know, they're going to read it. And an 88 year old woman who's a friend of mine, her mother read this book. I was so horrified. She told me, she said, my mother read the book. Your mother who's 88. She, she loved it. I said, what about all the language? She goes, didn't bother her at all. She loved it. <laughs> wow. Wow. What a compliment. <laughs> so what inspired you to write a memoir? Just, uh, I mean, I'm 66 years old. So I thought um, I should probably write a memoir. I should probably write something. So I have it. So it's out there in the world. And, uh, and, and I knew everything I was writing. So I under, I wanted to write, uh, yeah, I wanted to share my years in New York. I wanted to share uh my my when my mother died, I wanted to share everything, and and the writing writing for Roseanne was such a big deal, and I was sharing that was just in, it was great, you know Amy Sherman and all the people I got to know, they're all the really great writers, and that experience of making money and sitting in that room day and night for like four years in Roseanne, and then other shows I wrote on, but Roseanne was a really was like, I mean I really learned to write there, and because you just. It was like prison. It was like to sit in prison. It was because you just sat there and you ate and you chain smoked and and you yelled at each other. And some people had affairs. And I mean, it was just it was unbelievable. It was incredible. We came up with a show every week. We came up with the show every week. It's just not the simile I was expecting to then go. It was like prison. (laughs) It was. It was totally like prison. You're just in a prison, but you're getting a huge paycheck. It's like they slipped the paycheck under the under the under the cell, you know, and. And you go, I'm making all this money. I, how I'm fat. I'm drinking wine at night with my, I mean, it was, it was a nightmare that way. But after you finished that job, after four years, you could work anywhere because people respected that you worked on that show and you survived it. So it was an amazing job and it was an amazing show and the writers were good. And Roseanne was sometimes unbearable, but at the end of the day, she was always there for me. She was great. Well, I was, was going to ask when you say surviving it, was it, was it due to personal conflict there that that would even be necessary to us? Yeah, because you, because you were stuck together so much, mm-hmm. you know, you were in the room so much. So some people would fight with each other or you'd come up with a story and somebody would say, I pitched that last week. So that's my story because you get paid for that. So then you would fight about who owned what ideas. And mostly it was good on Roseanne because we had a head, we had a couple of head writers who were really strong and they would say, okay, here's what we're going to, here's the story we're going to do. And, you know, back then it was like we had little computers in our office, but we didn't have, you know, phones, which is good. Because honestly, if we'd had phones back then to, to look at, we, we would have just, we wouldn't have paid attention. We would have been even worse. So, and we had a chalkboard where they had to write the ideas on the chalkboard. I mean, it was just like, it was, it was really, really fun. But at the end, after four years, I was like, I don't know, I was like a hundred thousand pounds heavier and everybody was fat and it was just... That's how you came out of it. Fat and you had some money to go to Hawaii, you know? Not a bad deal. <laughs> no, it wasn't a bad deal. You just had to lose weight. It took like a whole year to, to look like a human being again. That was about it. 
So how is writing a book different from writing a TV show? Oh, totally different. First of all, you're by yourself and you're just writing. So you have to tell yourself, I want to do this and not quit. Because after a few months, you think I've lost my path or I don't really want to do it. Plus, you're writing prose the whole time. You're not writing uh, characters and dialogue. And so in a, in a television show, you know, it's already set. So you say, this, these are the characters and this is the story. And in television, um, you, the main character has the story has to revolve around them. So in the book, it wasn't because it's a biography about me. I guess it kind of revolved around me, but it was me telling my story as if I was sitting telling somebody my story. This is what happened. And in television, it's different. You've got to have dialogue for all your characters. You've got to build a story around dialogue and uh, act breaks and just a little suspense. And you've got to solve it all in 22 minutes. So that's quite different. And this was sort of just writing, 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 writing endlessly. And then having to really make sure it's interesting and you're not going drifting off into an area that nobody cares about. And that's what I had to learn. And that was hard. And there's probably some moments in the book that, that aren't interesting, but I tried not to do that. And this is my first book. So, I mean, so far it's done really well in London it's doing better than anywhere else for some reason. I can't explain that in England. Interesting. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. So, and the U S is doing okay, but nobody knows who I am, you know? So this is another reason why, I was like, I don't know if you know this, but you should know this. <laughs> On Amazon.com, where the book is for sale, they have a picture of the Queen of England and her photos, her 50 years of photographs. My book is right next to hers. <laughs> so it's Queen Elizabeth's 50 years of photographs. And then next to it is My Dirty Life <laughs> Comedy. <laughs> is that great? That's the algorithm at play with Amazon. You, you never know what, uh, what's going to happen. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, it's just ridiculously brilliant. So I love that. Wow. So did you prefer the independent versus collaborative uh, in the writing process? Was it less prison-like? It's it's a lot less prison-like. Yeah, because you you have total control over your time. So you just come in and you write when you want to. And then, you know, you go out and do something else for four days and come back to it. But uh, the money, I mean, the money, the money in television was, was great. The money was really good. So uh, this is a totally different part of my life now where I get to do this. And I didn't really care about the money. I'd really cared about if I could, if I could actually write a book, that was my big concern. If I could do it, and and so far the reaction's been pretty good. I'm always my friends love it. All the comedians have, have read it and like it. But you know, it's just a pro, it's just a it's a challenge for me to write a book. And my brother is also a writer. He's much he, he writes much better than I do. He writes science fiction and he writes novels, which I would never attempt to write a novel. So just short stories and stories and little tiny stories, but. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I couldn't imagine writing on television now. I couldn't do it. You know, you can't go into a room and sit there at my age and sit there till four o'clock in the morning and have to eat a whole pie to stay awake. Couldn't do that. No, I don't want to do that. So. <laughs> so, Did you attempt to go through a traditional publisher? Why did you end up choosing self-publishing? Do you know what's really funny? Because everyone said that to me. Everyone said you should really try to get a publisher. Don't, don't do self-publishing. But you guys, Book Baby there's something so good about the way you present yourself online and it's so professional. And I think what attracted me to it was, and somebody had told me, I don't remember who told me, go to book baby. I said, what is book baby? So I look it up. And the thing that's, the thing that's really, really pulled me towards you to, to publish my book was you have everything covered. First of all, your presentation of your website is huge. We do this. We will, we will edit, we'll present it. We'll bind it. What well, you do everything. It's a real business. It's, it's absolutely 100%. Uh, 
it explains everything. There's just nothing you have to think about with, with Book Baby. So for me, I looked it up and I saw everybody, you have pictures of people like this. You have really goofy, fun pictures of people with their books, which I loved. And then I looked at the prices and I thought, this is expensive. But then I thought, you know, this isn't expensive. This is really great. And yeah, it's just it just felt like the right place to go. And nobody else really had anything like that online. I never saw, I didn't see anything else like that to compare to yours, to your company. So um yeah, I guess I kind of, I thought about getting a publisher and maybe this next book, I thought about getting a publisher, but I think I would do my book again with you, this next one. And then maybe, maybe when I write uh, fiction, maybe then I would try to get a publisher, but I think I need to um, establish myself and get a little notoriety before I do that. You guys made it easy, honestly. You do have some uh, notoriety of an existing fan base. Uh, have you thought about how you're going to leverage that fan base to promote your book? I've tried to, I've been trying, I've been doing it through um, Instagram and Twitter and my Facebook page. I'm not sure I'm doing that good a job. I may not be doing enough, but um, I think the next book, I'm going to make sure that I have more help with that because I think I need more help to get my name out there to get people to buy the book. And I know if I had a publisher, I'd probably have a lot more sales, but um, I just don't, I just don't, I just don't want to go through uh, having to get a publisher and having them say, oh, we're not interested. I don't care. You know, I just don't. It's like you kind of earn you kind of earn the right to just do it yourself, package it yourself, do it yourself. But if I was looking to make a lot of money, I guess I would try to get a yeah some better um, advertising. And I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to handle it. It's like I'm not looking at it that way, that seriously, really, that in a big way. I just want to write a book and have people read it and laugh and like it. So I know it sounds really artsy fartsy, but that's how I feel. You no, know? I, we we have people uh, authors from all over the place who have lots of different goals for their books. Uh, have you thought about, do you have a specific goal in mind for this book for my dirty life and comedy? I just wanted to, I just want people, I want people to, to really love it and laugh and read it and come see my standup. I wanted to try to try to somehow connect it to my standup. Cause when I go to London and I do standup comedy, the people that it has to be the reason people that are buying my book have to have seen my standup. They ha it has to be connected somehow. Cause it's just odd that in every other place that I've, I've put out advertising, London is doing the most. Uh, for some reason, I don't know if they're buying hundreds of books, but they're buying where they're buying them. And I don't know. I don't know what the, the end result of the money is. I don't I don't know yet. It'd probably like $80. I don't know. I don't care. I just want people to read it and see my stand up. And yeah, I don't know. You know, I just want to get laughs. Like I just love I love doing comedy. So to get up on stage and have somebody come up to me afterwards and say, we loved your book. That's enough. It's great. We got to get you some printed copies of your book to then sell at the shows. You know what? I, that's great that you said that because I uh, somebody told me that actually you should get some printed copies. Yeah, I should. I will. That's I'll get you over to the sales department after this call. Okay, I'm going to go in September, so I will get some books. I will. That's a great idea. Yeah, I can, September when you're getting back on tour. Or? September the seventh through the fourteenth. One week I'm going to go to London in September, and I'm going to read a little bit out of the book, and and then uh, that's a good idea and get some books and sell them. Great idea. And then the next book, uh, my next book is called um, A Comedian Lost in Bavaria. It's going to be good. Okay. So that would, goes into the, uh, the German the stages of your life when you moved to Germany? Yeah. It's all about trying to survive here and how funny it's been, how horrible, hard it's been, the language and just being an American person and being a gay person living in a little tiny, we, we live in a tiny town, 12,000 people. So just, there's just nothing here for me. My, my partner is fabulous. We've been together 14 years, but I'm in this little town. I don't fit in at all. So it's all about that. But I have friends here, but I, it's a story about living here because everybody who read the book, 
my other book said, I want to know more. I want to know what happened next because you, you stopped so abruptly. The book ended so fast. So I want to know what happened after that. So, so what, what is it like trying to do a comedy show in Germany? You have to have specific uh, times for English comedians. Yeah, they do. In fact, in Berlin, they have an English show once every couple of months and they put English comedians on and uh, in Munich, they do it. Um, and uh, some, there's a couple of other ones, Dusseldorf, they do English shows and then they do online shows. They did, I did a couple of those, but, um, but so many people like in Berlin or in, um, in uh, Munich, they lots of people speak English. I mean, almost everybody does. So you can really do stand up. You can really do it all the time, but they only do it couple of times a month, once, once every two months. <clears throat> and the German comedians are good. I mean, some of the German comedians are good and some of them are not good. I mean, American comedians are really good and British are amazing. And when you watch the German comedy shows, oh my God, it's so funny. They're, they're so broad, you know, they don't do, they're not, they're not like bitter, like, oh, hi, I hate it here. They don't do that stuff. I wish I were dead. They don't do all that bitter stuff. They're just like, hi, hi, hey, hey. They're really broad and really big. And, and I think they're, some of them are really good. Um, there's a woman here. I can't think of her name. Damn, I can't think of her name. She's chubby and she's really smart and she does all political humor. And I watched her once and my partner had to translate everything for me. She wanted to kill me because she was translating constantly, but she was really, really, really good. And she's more like an American comic, you know, more like little low key and with an attitude. But um, yeah, and, and German television is just so different, so different than American TV. Uh, I wanted to get into, uh, because it's Pride Month now, you wrote about coming out in the 90s. And, uh, you know, obviously it's a few years removed from Stonewall, but, you know, it's still an entirely different time. So, you know, what was that experience like? What made you come out at that time? Um, I was, I didn't really, uh, I was really shy about coming out because um, everybody else was. I mean, there was a comedian named Jason Stewart, who's an American comedian, and he was the bravest person. He just came out. He just came out like crashing out. He did his stand-up. He just talked about being gay, and I'm sure he went through hell uh, with audiences and with backlash from that, but he's a really successful actor and comedian now. But um, it was really hard because I was young and pretty, and, and, uh, and I would get on stage and for me to say I was a lesbian just would have just killed my, it would have killed my act, it would have killed a, any television appearances, it would have killed everything. And, and when I did finally come out, it didn't really matter because I was writing television. So I kind of did it. I didn't do it when I really wanted a stand-up career. I did it after I thought it was, I thought that was over and it didn't matter. And then I just said, I'm, I'm gay and who cares? And people didn't respond well to it even then, you know, I mean, I started working on Roseanne in 1990, um, 92, 91, I don't remember the year. Yeah, 91, 92 season. And then I started, I remember going to the comedy store and saying I was gay and people just were, were like horrified. And they were just like quiet, you know? And and you just kind of go, what are you, guys, it's 1991, what are you, nuts? And now I go to London, I say I'm a big dyke. They love it. I mean, they love it. Everybody loves it. Nobody cares. It's completely different. But back then it was really, really, it was scary and hard to come out. I came out on the Arsenio Hall show, which was a huge mistake. The audience just completely... Like they just went quiet as if I'd cut my wrist in front of them, you know? And yeah, the coming out stuff and being a gay comedian and being a gay anybody in Hollywood then was really hard. And the ones, the people that came out and said they were gay were just my heroes. I don't know, I don't know how they did it and survived their careers, but I was really scared to do it. I did it in little tiny pieces. I didn't, I wasn't brave enough to just come out. I did an article in The Advocate, I came out then, but this was when I was writing already. So yeah. 
That was terrible and still is. Some comics still have a hard time with it, you know? Can't say it. That's bullshit, really. It is. Yeah, it seems like it must have been a really hard line to walk because your friends are all comedians who all know, or at least seem to know this about you. And, and you know, are, are then, uh, you know, you're forced to take on this different persona to the public. Yeah. yeah, it was really awful. And I remember coming out and saying, uh, and I couldn't, you know, the men would come up at you and my guys would ask you out or they, when you tell them you were gay and they'd, they'd call you a bitch. They'd get, they'd get mean. They would get mean. And then you just kind of go, fuck, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to be myself. And, and it would change your act. So you'd go on stage and you would talk about things that didn't matter at all. So you talk about shopping and dating. And I, me talking about dating a man was so stupid because it never rang true. It always sounded fake. And I would watch myself on TV and go, oh, God, why do I have to say I'm straight? Why can't I just talk about something else, which is what I eventually did. But um, yeah, was to, I could never say I had a a partner or a girlfriend, never. I, I couldn't do it. Me, I wasn't brave enough until later. And then I was kind of a little bit less shy about it, but, oh, and then I had, but then I had, um, I did a video in 1985. This is interesting. I did a video called Sorority Girls from Hell. This really culty, crazy video. And it caught on in the gay community and it, and it got pretty well known. And then I would go and do gay clubs. I would I would do a straight club, Sam Straight. Then I, you know, two weeks later I'd go, to Atlanta and I would do a gay club and say, I'm a dive, say everything, you know, it was great. So I was living these two lives and this video was really popular. So yeah, it was wild. And it still is people, guys still write to me. We love your video. Really? So long ago, such a long time ago, but I have a lot of really big fans from that video. It's gotten about maybe a million, million, two million hits on YouTube over the years. It's pretty good. Must have been easier to have uh, two different personas at different nightclubs now back then than today, oh, where those videos just would have been up on YouTube immediately back to back. Yeah, yeah you could never hide. Yeah, you couldn't, there's no place to hide that. No, now you're just, yeah, I mean, you, now you would be out, it would be over. But back then you could do it, you could hide. And um, my agent would say to me, you can't come out because you won't be able to get any more work. <laughs> okay. And I think that was part of the reason why I ended up writing, because I thought, First of all, I wanted to make more money. And then I didn't really want to go on the road. I hated the road. Before I let you go, I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about the uh, the current world of comedy. Uh, obviously, shows have been shut down for a little while now. Uh, yeah. what, what do you think comedy looks like post-COVID? I think it's going to be really... Um, well, first of all, I hope that not everyone's talking about COVID because... Mm -hmm. Because you have to kind of not talk about it. You can do maybe one joke. I don't have any, I'm not going to have any jokes about it. But I think the best thing is you, there's always going to be somebody who's going to do it. So why should I do it? I mean, I have nothing in my show that's about, about uh, COVID. I have nothing about um, staying at home all the time. Nothing. Maybe one, maybe one little line within another joke about staying home all the time. It was no different than, you know, my normal life. So I don't know. But I'm not going to actually write jokes about it because... I don't think people, I don't, who cares? People know it. They already know what we had to live with. Who wants to hear a joke about it? I, and some other comic will do it. No, I have my own stuff I talk about and that won't be part of it, I don't think. Maybe now I say that now. Really quickly. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. how many, you know, what sort of jokes can you even make? Uh, it kind of reminds me with, with uh, the jokes everybody feels like they need to, to start off any sort of comedy show with now is all about cancel culture and saying, oh, I'm not gonna stop at any lines. Like you're not really adding anything to the joke here. You're, you're not saying yeah. anything original. Yeah. It's not really, it's just not a really great way to start your job. You know, don't do your jokes about, just don't state the obvious. That's all. And don't, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I'm sure there's good jokes out there about it, but I don't know what they are and I'm not doing them. So for me, it's yeah. just, there's always been a line between what's transgressive and what's allowed 
and comedies always walk that line that, that, that you have to walk that line. You have to walk over, it. you have to stomp all over it. And it's great that, uh, that that's what standup comedy is all about. It's, it's gotten better. I mean, in the seventies and the eighties doing standup people, I don't sure how they were crossing the line. I don't really remember, honestly, any comics that were really like really crossing the line. Well, George Carlin was just getting up and saying bad words. <laughs> and yeah, he was saying all kinds. He was great. I had to, I, had, I got a chance to work with him. Yeah. Oh my God, I did a little TV show with him. Oh, he was so great. I remember saying to him backstage, I was so nervous because he was just like a god to me, a comedy god. And I remember saying to him, um, I can't say I'm a lesbian in my act. He said, Oh, I'm just going to say, it. he said, Well, fuck them. Just say it. Doesn't matter. Who cares what they think? And for some reason, that never left me. I was like, For him to say that to me, that was his advice. I took it with me and then eventually came out. But, but he was so, um, yeah, he was so great. But he got in trouble. He got in trouble for being so irreverent and so mm -hmm. crossing the line. He was such a nice guy. God, he was smart. There wasn't anybody like him. There's nobody else like him since then, I don't think. But yeah, wow. I love talking about all the old comics. It's really fun because they they were really great. And now there's some really great ones too. And but not as not as great because they didn't have to break so many rules now. Now all the rules are broken, so it's easier, you know. But these are the rule breakers and pretty cool. What other comedians were you awestruck by meeting in person? Um, I loved, uh, I love Sam Kinison. I love Sandra Bernhardt. Sandra Bernhardt. I love because she just got up and she did, she would do Jackie Kennedy. Like she'd get up on stage in the main room comedy store and she would just do like 10 minutes of Jackie Kennedy. People didn't know what she was doing, but, but she got, but she got famous because she stuck to what she believed was funny and good and smart and interesting to watch. It was really, really good. And some of the comics that got big laughs did, didn't get anywhere. You know, so it, it just depended on what you were presenting, your persona and uh, how honest you were and and how uh, you stuck with it. You know, you didn't you didn't abandon what you were talking about or, or back down. She was so good. And, uh, and read your know, book and wrote an intro. I see. What? And uh, read, read your book and wrote an intro for it. She did. <laughs> she wrote, I, I asked her. I hadn't talked to her in a long time. I said, Sandra, will you write a uh, forward for me? She said. Oh, sure, honey. Like a doctor in years. She just said, okay. I, and we talked about the seventies and we talked about everything. And then she just, she and her partner wrote it, it together. And they said they had to sit for hours and figure out the right thing to say. But um, yeah, she was, she and I were really good friends then. And, and but like Diane Nichols was a really good comic. And, and uh, some of the guys, uh, there's a guy named Alan Stevens, who was a really good comedian. God, he was so good. These were, and Sam Kinison, they were the, I think they were called the, they were like a gang of boys that went on the road. They were tough and they all wore big long jackets and some of them had guns and it was just craziness. Yeah. It was wild. <laughs> yeah. That was the wild times. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, the comics now are just, I mean, like Amy Schumer is really good. Do you know Amy Schumer's standup? Standup's pretty good. Yeah. And these women are just like, they just say whatever they say. It's very good. I, th I feel like uh, some of the uh, comedians today are getting more uh, more options to play with the medium and add more elements. Um, Hassan Minaj did a really good set. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. Um, oh, yeah. He had just like an interactive thing going on behind him. There were always like pictures popping up and like adding to his joke. You're like, that's incredible. Like, it's really cool to see the way the, the medium is being played with. Yeah, you can really do that. I mean, the thing is, I'm an old school comic, you know, so I just get up and do my act. But yeah, the comedy has really has really moved into a completely different uh, area. It's really good. And yeah, I mean, I just think uh, um, 
I think there's comics out there who have written books about their about their careers. I can't think of his name now. It's driving me crazy. I can't think of the other comic that I love so much, and he wrote a book about his stand-up and um, about his career. And, and a lot of the books are great. Some of them, some of them are not great because you know who cares? Like there's some comics that just talk about why they didn't make it. I didn't make it. I never made it. I didn't. I didn't do this side show. I didn't. You know, I didn't get famous. Yeah, you just can't write that. <laughs> Nobody wants to read how bad you feel about your career. You have to write about how much fun you had and what you contributed to the comedy culture, really, you know, to come up in the comedy boom was a big honor to look back and go, I was part of that comedy boom is, is huge. And the comics, the young comics who are reading my book, I had one woman write to me and she's 23 and she's starting to stand up. She goes, Oh my God, your book was so great. I loved it so much. I'm not going through half. I'm not doing half of that. I'm not doing anything compared to that. And, but she's good and smart and funny and, and she loved it. So this was, this is great. This is what I should have said to you before. That's what I'm giving back. I'm giving back. This is what I did. So you guys can do way more, you know, but this is, this was the road, this was the road I paved. So now you get to speed down there and do something else, but yeah, giving it. We'll just giving cut it. that piece in later. That's the good part of podcast. Okay, good. Yeah. Cause that's what I, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> that's what I was, you stumped me a little bit. I'm like, what, what did, why did I write this book? You know, that's really the reason to give it to other people, to hand it over. Here, check this out. This is what I did. All right, thank you so much to Lois Bromfield for her time and congratulations on her new release, My Dirty Life in Comedy, available on the Book Baby Bookshop now. As always, please follow, like, rate, subscribe, and share the Book Baby Spotlight podcast. And if you're interested in publishing your memoir or any other title with Book Baby, our self-publishing specialists are standing by at 877-961-6878 or info at bookbaby.com. Until next time, everyone, stay safe.